0: Well, good evening, it's good to see you guys, glad you're here. Um, I'm going to pick up where BT left off this morning, and that's in Luke 2, so you can go ahead and turn to Luke 2, Luke chapter 2. While you're making your way there, just want to say I've been encouraged by you all, Um, just the ways that you disciple your children, you love your kids, um, pushed me to think well for my family to display and you display Jesus in your life and um, just as pushed me. So thank you. Um, I was born on December 11th. So if you have your calendar, today's my birthday. What a great privilege. But listen, this is not about my birthday, okay? Many of you have given me really kind birthday wishes, but tonight we're going to look at another birth. A better birth than mine. Somebody who gave us all who believe in Jesus a new birth. So Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1, reads, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea There was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Father, like Mary, as we'll read later, or as we see later, help us tonight to treasure up these words and ponder them in our heart that we would exalt Jesus. Help us to declare your promises kept, the humility of your Son, and declare the praise that all may see. Guard my mouth from error, Father. Fill me with your spirit to proclaim boldly your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't play this game, but chess... It's a very interesting game. It's one of the oldest and most popular games we know. If you've played chess, it's a strategic game. It's complex. You pick an opening move. You have your strategy. You use the pieces on the board to manipulate your opponent. And the winning move is to checkmate the king. There's a method, a concentration. And it's mostly in probabilities, right? So it's amazing. You can see someone anticipate the move of their opponent. But our text tonight isn't about probabilities. It's about promises. The promises of a God to humble himself. And our response in that humility is to declare praise. So I want you to see tonight and declare three things about our God. We declare his promise, his humility, And that leads to our praise. So if you'll look there, our text opens up tonight with a king in verse 1. Caesar Augustus, great in military power and influence. He was given the name Augustus by his relative Julius Caesar. And Augustus means great or worthy of reverence or worship. Now, the Senate, a governing assembly at the time, deified Julius Caesar, calling him the divine Julius. Because of this, people would later refer to Caesar Augustus as the son of God, meaning son of Julius is what they meant. And we see this king, Julius or Caesar Augustus, issue a decree that the world should be registered, a census to be taken. Rome loved to keep tabs on people. They didn't just do this one census. They they liked to do it. They kept tabs on them. They wanted to show their power, they wanted to show their expanse in the world, their domination. A census also helped taxation so that they continue, they could continue their Roman conquest and support Caesar's luxurious lifestyle. Little did Caesar know that behind every power move he made, was a God playing the greatest chess game to declare another king. You see, Caesar is simply a pawn in the hands of our God. He is fulfilling the exact move that God wants him to. In the Old Testament, we are given these precious promises about this king. In Micah 5, 2, we are told this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old, from ancient days. But see, that's not the first time we see a promise in the Old Testament. In Genesis 3.15, we're told an offspring would come and crush the head of a serpent. In Isaiah 7.14, we are told, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name. Emmanuel. So behind every choice made by Caesar, behind every action, is a movement God is making to fulfill a promise. And this is not spoken in probabilities. This isn't a wild guess. It's not coincidence that Caesar makes this action. God moves heaven and earth to, uh, to make a tiny baby, to give him room to be born. And there's no match for this promise. If God says it, well, surely he will do it. But do you believe that? Do you believe God keeps his promises to you? Do you, like me at times, struggle with those promises? When Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When he says to cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we're told that he's working all things together for our good and for his glory, are you sure? When we read that God will bring us to glory, can he do that? Well, friends, if you're going to declare his promises to other people, you must first believe them. You've got to rest your life on these promises. It's not our promises. It is not based on a, God, I will serve you all my days. But rather, God says to you, I will keep you all your days. And it's by faith we receive these promises. You won't be able to simply mentally agree your way into heaven. You must trust. And if he has been so faithful, will he not finish that work that he started? This is the good news we declare. These promises God came to save us from our sins so we can confidently say to other people, if you repent and trust in Him, not might, not could, He will save you. And we tell people they can have peace in Christ, they can have everlasting joy, they can have eternal life. We don't proclaim probabilities, it's promises. But not only do we declare these promises, we also declare the way in which they come. Humility. Now, we know on this side of the cross that Jesus is the true Son of God, the promised one. And Luke introduces us to another Son of God. I mentioned Caesar earlier. A great king, a king whom the statement of faith describes as infinite, intelligent, maker and supreme ruler of heaven and earth, inexpressibly glorious in holiness, worthy of all possible honor, confidence, and love. Clearly, one of these kings is not like the other. But does that description fit what we see here in Luke 2? Because what I see seems a little different. An infinite, intelligent, supreme ruler of heaven and earth. Where is that? Where? Well, he's right there in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. We're not even told his name at that point. I mean, obviously we know it's Jesus, but Luke just says a firstborn son. Do you see him? A, A humble, feeble infant born to a woman so seemingly insignificant to the world. And this is no luxurious palace. He's lying in a an animal feeding trough hardly seems like royalty. But you know this, you know this, Jesus came as a baby. Unbelievers know this, at least least around Christmas time. They, even some people mock baby Jesus. Why? Why mock him? Well, it's natural for us to think power and influence and prestige And royalty looks a certain way. God as a baby seems rather ridiculous, right? As BT mentioned this morning, I would would tell you to come with fresh eyes to see this humility again. As God accomplishes his promises, this is a baby. Now there ought to be excitement around this, but also grief. Why do I say that? Because even though it's, it's absolutely exciting that he's here, we know why. Why he came. It was the depths of our sin. How low does God need to go in order to rescue us? Well, the answer is to take on human flesh. I couldn't find who said this, but I've been struck by a phrase that stuck with me for a while. That God becoming man was the greatest exaltation of man and the greatest humiliation of God. And this is how God works through history, is it not? He chooses the small, the humble, the weak. Now track with me here. Let's look at this text again and notice a few things. Here you have Joseph and Mary, insignificant as I said, it seems, nowhere to stay, Traveling to a town of, called Bethlehem. And if you remember, I said in Micah 5, 2. You, oh uh, Bethlehem, you who are too little. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. And then after this, we see in verse 4. Which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, what significance does David have here in this day, wasn't David a mighty king? Did he not um, rise up Israel and, and display this power? And that he was even exalted in Israel as a mighty king. A king who we are told the Savior would come through. But David did not start that way, did he? He was not born royalty. Before David was a king, he was A shepherd. Hmm. And you see that in verse 8. That in the same region there were shepherds out in the field. In verse 8, it's the shepherds who get a message about a king. I mean, it's interesting because the shepherds only show up here, and their purposes is to receive a message they go to see if it's true. And then in verse 20, it's kind of comical. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They just go home, praising God. They don't shop again. Where are they? That's it. But surely there's a reason. You know, what are you doing, God? These little men of low status in society, some say that they were even despised by the elite and the powerful. And that's exactly who God chooses to carry his message through. This is God's pattern. In the Old Testament, 1 Samuel sixteen eleven, God tells Samuel about a future king at Jesse's house. And in verse 11, Samuel says, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping sheep. God took a lowly shepherd boy, David, to make him a king. But here in Luke 2, we have God taking shepherds to meet the king. And this shouldn't be strange to you. God uses humble means. Now, the greatest of all humility is seen in the form of our Savior, Wrapped in flesh. Why does God do this? Why not take the mighty and the powerful in the world? Why not deliver this message to Caesar? Well, our pride is too great. And our pride, in our pride, God is a threat. Because we're glory thieves. Pride says, look what I did. Look what I can do. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 28, it says that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. None. There is only room for one praise, and that is to Jesus. We do not declare Jesus to others to show our greatness, We don't claim a message of arrogance. We boast in a God who became a baby and grew up and died. We can't expect the world to marvel at such a message unless they are humbled to see their own brokenness and sin. And we must tell them. We declare a message of a humble king, a baby wrapped in cloths, Lying in a manger, seen by lowly shepherds. That's the message we have. But before you think too little of this baby, let us remember that God is the ultimate chess player. Caesar was simply a pawn. But our God was not done. Jesus coming as a baby was not the lowest he would go. There was one last move to make. This baby, as the angels declare in Luke 2.14, would bring peace on earth. Peace between God and man. And the angels seemed confident in their message. They knew that God would accomplish his purpose for this baby to be born. Because this baby had a mission. The angels were so confident. Look at what they do. They tell these shepherds what's going to happen, what they will find. And in verse 13 and 14, particularly 14, there's this host that just breaks out into praise. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. They knew what Jesus came to do. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, grew up. His ministry brought the lowly into the kingdom, accompanied by women and a messy, unlearned group of men. He ministered to the lowly. Luke 5, in Luke 5, he heals a leper and a paralytic. In chapter 6, a man with a withered hand. In chapter 9, a child with an unclean spirit. He teaches stories that honor Samaritans, the people the Jews despised, cleanses more lepers, heals more people, raises the dead. These are the people God is welcoming into his kingdom. And he is not finished. There are still more he is bringing in. So what was this final move? Was it to climb the ranks of Rome, ruling over Caesar? That would be far too short short of an accomplishment. His task was to go low, to serve, to give his life as a ransom. His task was to become obedient to the point of death, to reconcile sinners to God. And he did just that. There is not one move from any enemy who would stop the Lord Jesus at this point. He would make his way to Calvary. And as he made his way to the cross and stretched his hands, he hung his head and he cried out, It is finished. And in that moment, the enemy, sin, Satan, and death were defeated. And the Son of God said, Checkmate! Though the world sees defeat... We sing victory. Every praise is to our God, whose love does not expire. He has poured it out on us, and we will sing. The angels praise him. Glory to God in the highest. One of the best habits you can form is to sing and to sing loudly. To sing praises to our God. This message we declare is a message of promise. This message we declare is about the humility of our God. And it is through our praise of him that others see and are attracted. It is through even our confessed repentance that people see And they say, there must be a king. There must be somebody you follow because you are not like the other. And so we tell the world about this king. We proclaim his promise, we declare his humility, and we praise him. Let's pray.